0: glad to have you guys glad to have you on live stream and if you have a question then there's the chat button for those on live stream and make use of that and john my engineer substitute engineer will relay that to me anybody here that has a question as we go don't hesitate this is lesson 11 on page 99 in your notes page 99 and we're starting a new section this one on the doctrine of christ And so I'll remind you as to where that fits into the overall curriculum for Master Plan for for Life. I remind you about the homework that is in front of each of these lessons, gives you six days worth of something to do. And we don't check it, but I encourage you to do it. It gets you in the Word. You just look up a few passages. It doesn't take very long. prepares you for what we're going to talk about. So you look in the upper right-hand corner on page 99. It says, The Doctrine of Christ. So, this is a new section. We've covered three of the five sections now that comprise part one. Master Plan for Life has those two parts. The first one, answering the question, Who am I? The second, Why am I here? And this first part, answering the question, Who am I?, has the five sections the doctrine of God. Having looked at who God is, we then look at God's communication to us in the doctrine of the Bible. And then, having looked at God's communication to us, we look at what the Bible says. About us where we came from what our nature is what our problem is in particular with regard to to sin so we've seen that over the last couple of weeks and now we start this fourth of five sections in part one doctrine of Christ and we're positioned now to look at the doctrine of Christ because we've looked at who God is and we've looked at who humanity is and both uh, God and humanity comprise the two natures, as we're going to see, of Christ, that he is God and he is man. He is fully each of those, and we'll see he has then the attributes of deity, and he has the attributes of humanity. So today, page 99, we'll start lesson 11. That's the first lesson in the doctrine of Christ. And this one's called the person of Christ, and the next week we're going to look at the, the work of Christ. So top of page 99... Top of page 99, Deja. You walked in right at a good time. (laughs) The person of Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. The Bible teaches he is simultaneously and fully God and man, the God-man. Although ultimately a full understanding of the person of Christ is beyond the limitations of the human mind, the scriptures are clear in their presentation of this marvelous truth. Page 99, Brad. Page 99. Just started. This lesson, then, is going to survey the biblical evidence for the dual nature of Jesus Christ in His one unique person. We're going to see that Christ is God, Jesus is man, Christ Jesus is the God-man. Now, notice the, the terms there. Uh, we're going to try to use the title Christ when we speak of His deity, the fact that He's God. And then His name given at His birth, Jesus, when we talk about Him being man, we talk about His humanity, just to try to keep those straight in in your mind. So, his title, Christ, we will see me, it's a title, it's not a name, and the title means the Anointed One. And the Anointed One, who came as man, is fully God. Christ is God. Jesus, then his name at his birth, is fully human as well. And then together, his divine nature, that he's God, his human nature, that he is man. Together, he is Christ Jesus. He is the the unique person of the God-man. Okay, First, then, Christ is God. The statement, Christ is God, means he possesses all the attributes, that is, the character qualities that belong to God. Now, let's just remember here for a moment, because it's been a while. This is lesson 11. And if we go back a few months to Lessons 2 and 4, when we were in the first section of Master Plan for Life on the Doctrine of God, Lessons 2 and 4 were about the attributes of God, the character qualities of God. Lesson 2 was called the greatness of God. Lesson 4 was called the goodness of God. And remember, his character qualities, his attributes, can be placed in those two different categories, greatness and goodness. We also use the fancy terms, his incommunicable attributes, his communicable attributes. Those he has by virtue of being God, and he, as God alone, has those. Things like his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience. Those are the attributes of his greatness. That was lesson two. But then there are the attributes of his goodness, and those are things like grace, mercy, faithfulness, truth, righteousness. Those are things that He can share with humanity made in His image. So in a limited fashion, we can reflect those attributes that that God has. They shine in their fullest in, in His person, but we can share those as well. That first category, omnipotence, sovereignty, omniscience, that's God alone. This other category, then He can share, and that's why we call them communicable. They can be shared with humanity. All right. So that's just a reminder then that now as we talk about Christ being God and we say that he possesses all the attributes that belong to God, then that would mean all the things we said back in lesson two would be true of of Christ. So all that is true of God applies, we say here, equally to Christ. The term deity describes one who possesses the attributes of God. In lesson one, we saw there are three persons who possess those attributes, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of this lesson tonight, we're going to be reminded that as you think about one God and three persons, and you have these three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that possess the attributes of deity that are God, that ultimately that is incomprehensible. We saw that back in lesson one. Incomprehensible doesn't mean contradictory it just means that your limited mind can't can't and my limited mind can't get around all of that that you have a uh, a god who is one in essence but three in in person and i talked about why that shouldn't embarrass you a couple of times that everybody has to start with something they can't explain and as you start with a creator then at some point you're going to have someone, something beyond which you cannot go any further back. And no one's able to explain how the first person then arrived. So existence itself is incomprehensible. Uh, And so it shouldn't embarrass you that there are things about God that we can't get our minds fully around. That's true for everybody, no matter what system of thought, belief, philosophy they have. Now, when we talk about there being one God in three persons. We're not talking about, uh, in church history, uh, a heresy, a false belief called modalism. Modalism. That, uh, that term, just break it down, it, it means modes. That, that when we talk about, this is a false notion, that when you talk about the triunity of God, you're simply talking about God appearing... Manifesting himself in different modes, sometimes he manifests himself as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as as holy Spirit. That's modalism. But that's not what the a lot of people think that. Uh, even you know a lot of Christian people who just haven't taken master plan for life, and so they <laughs> and so they think this modalism thing, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches he is simultaneously father, son, Holy Spirit. He isn't sometimes father, sometimes son sometimes Holy Spirit, He is all of those at at the same time. One God in three persons all the time. This lesson deals with the second person of the triunity, the Son of God, God, God the Son. So first of all, deity, that is, uh, that is godness, that He has the attributes of God, that's what we mean as we say in that previous paragraph by deity. Deity is ascribed to Christ in scripture. The scriptures state that Christ existed before his birth, and so he had pre-existence. Before he ever came as a child in Bethlehem, he existed from eternity past. Many mistakenly believe that Christ came into existence at the birth of Jesus. The Bible teaches that the person of Christ has existed eternally as God. There never was a time when he was not. You see, You see what it says there? Now, we probably should put that in quotation marks. A time when he was not. And here's why, because it's a quote. And it's a quote from church history from the 4th century from a guy named Arius, uh, A-R-I-U-S, Arius. And Arianism uh, teaches that that he's a created being. And in the opening centuries of Christianity... There was this debate, and as a matter of fact, Arius was influencing lots of people to this false idea that Christ was not eternal, but rather had been created. He's something less than, than God. And there were great debates about this, and there was a council, the Council of Nicaea, in 325 AD, 325 AD. And it ultimately declared Arianism and Arius to be false, a heretic, uh, his major opponent was Athanasius, again named Athanasius. So you have Athanasius, you have Arius. At the time Arius had the upper hand until Athanasius over time was able to convince people what the Bible taught. Uh, just as a quick aside, this council nor any other council defined the truth. It didn't define the truth, it simply described the truth the Bible already taught. S- but it's a good thing you had people come together and recognize the truth of what the Bible actually taught about something so important as this. And so here's Athanasius. Arius is carrying the day initially. And Athanasius was at one point taught, uh, told, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And he reportedly replied, well, then I'm against the world. So he just stood up. He taught what the Bible said and ultimately held sway. Arianism, though, lives on. The idea that there was a time, because Arius said there was a time when he was not. That's a quote from the heretic Arius. There was a time when Christ did not exist, that he was created. Now, it lives on today, this idea that Christ was created. Uh, Anybody know who might teach that idea that Christ was created? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, in, in John chapter 1 and verse 1 that I mentioned last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mentioned it in the sermon also last week as well. Uh, and this then in the first chapter of John, John identifies as being Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. The Jehovah's Witnesses actually change the translation of that. They have their own translation of the Bible called the New World Translation of the Bible, 1952, 1952. So it's a little bit of a Johnny-come-lately, but 1952. And they translate John 1:1. in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g, a God. So they have Jesus as being like a mighty angel. In fact, they call him the Archangel Michael. That's actually who Jesus is, according to Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. The Bible teaches he is, he is fully God, as we, will, as we will see. So contrary to Arius, contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses, there never was a time when he was, when he was not. So as we celebrate Christmas now, in the next few weeks, We're not celebrating the beginning of his existence. We're celebrating the beginning of his ministry on earth. So God, who always has been now, 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, came to earth to begin his mission on earth. And that's what we celebrate at, at Christmas. So never get the idea that when you see Jesus in the manger, that you're seeing the beginning of Christ's existence. He who existed from all eternity past has now come as, as humanity in this incredible thing that we will talk about in a little bit, becoming man in what we call the incarnation. We'll see that in a little bit. So the scriptures state that Christ existed before his birth. He pre-existed. You see that in a number of ways. One, he existed prior to creation. John, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then again, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word that in the beginning... Is on purpose from John in the New Testament. He's using the exact same language that Moses used in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. But he's saying that just like Moses said, In the beginning, God, I, John, am saying, In the beginning, Christ was there and He created. And the Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. So he existed prior to creation, and, the Bible teaches, he was active in creation. So as you move forward in time, before creation he was, and always was, but then at creation he's active, Christ is, in the creation itself. Here's what John says in John 1 as well. Through him all things were made. That is Christ, through him. And without him nothing was made that has been made. Colossians chapter 1 says the same. And then you move forward in time further. You see that Christ appeared in temporary human form throughout the Old Testament. So there are these spots in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament where you have Christ showing up in temporary human form. Now, at the first Christmas, he comes in permanent human form, as we'll see. But he appeared in temporary human form so, you have one such instance in Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring. And if you look at page 100, we say there that there are a number of considerations that have caused most scholars to identify this angel of the Lord with Christ. One is the use of the definite article it is the angel of the Lord, not an angel. You know, you'll have times in the Bible where an angel appeared and said, This is the angel of of the Lord, one. Secondly, the angel of the Lord is equated with God and worshipped as God. So this is is a special appearance by someone taking on this this form, visible form, apparently God doing that because equated with God and worshipped as God. And then notice the angel of the Lord never appears after Jesus is born. So you've got the angel of the Lord appearing a number of times in the first part of your Bible, but then never after, never in the New Testament, after Christ has come as as man. And then moving forward as well, you have Christ claiming to have existed prior to Abraham. So when you come now to the New Testament, and Jesus has been born, and he is now walking the earth and he's teaching And he is acquiring uh, opposition to his his person and his message. The Gospel of John, among others, but John really records this opposition that he was getting from the religious leaders. As we go through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, this coming Sunday we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see now for the first time that Peter and some of the apostles are jailed for preaching the Gospel of Christ. Well, this should be no surprise because they are preaching the the message of one who himself was opposed by the the religious leaders. And you see that throughout the Gospels, in particular in the Gospel of John. And you see here in John chapter 8, Jesus is answering them. uh, And and they're they're appalled (laughs) at the idea that, that Jesus would claim to be greater than Abraham. I mean, Abraham was the greatest figure in all of Judaism. And here are these Jewish religious leaders, and they're saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And back some weeks ago in here, I think I mentioned to you the significance of that, when Jesus said before Abraham was born, you know, he he uses this language on purpose. uh, Before he was born, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, here's why that's on purpose and why that's interesting. Because that, too, is really a quotation. And it's a quotation going back to the first part of your Bible. Jesus says this in the New Testament, John chapter 8. But 1,500 years earlier, that language had been used in a famous incident in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Where, where God speaks to, to Moses, and Moses is speaking to God, and God is telling Moses, calling Moses, to go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses doesn't want to. And so Moses says, you know, you know I can't talk. And you know, I can't, I can't do this. And, and besides, who am I going to say sent me? What am I going to tell? And the Lord says... Tell them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. So that whole I am idea, just not I was, I, I always am. Always existed, always self-existent. Life within himself, not created, is one of the key features of deity. Of, of God, I am. In fact, his personal name, the personal name of God in the first part of the Bible, Yahweh, means self-existent. It's, it, in fact, it's, uh, it's spelled much like the verb of being that's translated I am. So the very name Yahweh, the Lord, is the self-existent So now when Jesus uses that in the New Testament, there's this whole history to it. The name of God appearing to Moses, I am that I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Well, when they hear that, oh man, that is too much. And if you read the end of John chapter 8, what they do at that point is they pick up stones to kill him. And they they say the reason they're picking up stones to kill him is because he, being a mere man, makes himself equal with God. So sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, his detractors thought he did (laughs) because they wanted to kill him for it. The Bible certainly declares him to be God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then Jesus himself equates himself with God by saying, I am. And that's exactly the way those who hated him understood it as well. Uh, I think I told you a few weeks ago, this, you know, I am idea is sacred, obviously. You know, it's related to the name of God, Yahweh. It refers to his self-existence. So then when Kenneth Copeland says, Jesus said, I am, and bless God, I am too. Oh, wow. What does that make you, Kenneth? Since Jesus was claiming to be God, what are you claiming to be? You, you see, guys, when I tell you, and I say a lot you know, from the pulpit, don't watch these people, don't send these people any money, they're charlatans, they're liars, right? When I say this, it really sounds harsh. I mean every word of it. It's not hyperbole. I mean every last word of it. They are liars, and they have their reward. And God will punish and it will and it will be frightening Uh, the punishment God will inflict on those who use his name for their own benefit and for their own money all right can you tell how I feel about this all right so here's secondly a second proof of the fact that Christ the scriptures teach that um, Christ is deity, and that is, they refer to Christ as the Son of God. In Scripture, son of often means to possess the character qualities of a person or object. So here's an example. In Genesis 5.32, the original Hebrew literally says, Noah was the son of 500 years. What does that mean? It means he looked old. (laughs) The son of 500 years. He's got the the character qualities of somebody 500 500 years old. The son of 500 years. In your New Testament, Acts 4.36, Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. In fact, Barnabas is not his real name. That's a nickname. And it's his nickname, son of encouragement, because he was such an encourager. And so they called him Barnabas. But it means son of encouragement. Now, what does that refer to? Well, it's one who has the the character qualities of encouragement that displays that. Christ's enemies understood the phrase son of God to mean equality with God. Here in John chapter 10, we are stoning you for blasphemy because you claim to be God. Jesus answered them, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. They understood to say, you are God the Son or God's Son to mean you have the character qualities of God. And they were looking to stone him for claiming to be God. So the fact that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God indicates that he possesses the attributes of God. Now, when folks join our church, uh, they fill out a one-page application. First question is, who do you believe Jesus is? And then uh, folks answer that. And the next question is, what do you believe Jesus has done for us? And then they answer. And I have a, a meeting, and those are the two questions. We've got some others, but those are the two I focus in on, because I want to make sure everybody knows who Jesus is and what he's done. And on that first question, a lot of times people will say he's the Son of God, which is a good answer. But I want to make sure that they understand when we say the Son of God, we don't mean less than God. Because I've found that some people think that because that terminology, son of, the way we think of a child, if you're the child of someone, that means you came into existence at some some point. And then add to it the fact that, in fact, this one who has always existed did come to earth 2,000 years ago and did experience a birth. And so people can get all confused about that and think the son of God means God had a baby. And so Jesus is God's baby. Uh, and so we want to make sure that they understand that no, 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 he's fully God. Son of means to have the character qualities of, of God. And the scriptures just out and out state that Christ was fully God. Colossians 2, nine in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So, deity is ascribed to Christ in Scripture and demonstrated by Christ in Scripture. Although theologians differ on how often and under what circumstances Christ, while he walked the earth, demonstrated his deity, all Bible believers agree he was God and he manifested the fact that he was God on several occasions. He demonstrated that he has all power, that is, omnipotence. This is one of the character qualities back in chapter 2 of of God, the greatness of God. Remember, omnipotence, all power. In him were all things created. Obviously, if he's the creator, he has all power. Secondly, he demonstrated he has all knowledge, that he is omniscient. That's another one of those character qualities we saw back in lesson number two. Jesus says in Revelation 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He knows everything. And he's got all authority. That is, that's what sovereignty is, another character quality of God back in chapter 2. Just before he ascended back to the Father, he gives final instructions to his first followers in what we call the Great Commission, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he demonstrated not just these character qualities of God's greatness, but also of his goodness, and that's why we have number four here. Number four is he demonstrated that he has moral purity, that is holiness, you guys remember back in lesson four, that was about the character qualities of his goodness, and we use that word holy to describe each of his uh, character qualities of goodness, that he's holy in his grace, holy in his love, holy in his righteousness. And Jesus demonstrated this apartness in terms of his moral, uh, moral uh, behavior and, and standing. Jesus answered Satan when Satan tempted him here. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he could not be tempted. We're going to see in a little bit he could not sin because he was was morally pure. He was God. And as I've said, these are all the same attributes we studied back in section one under the doctrine of God. So Christ is God. Second, Jesus is man. The statement, Jesus is man, means he possesses all of the character qualities that belong to mankind. In other words, all that is inherently true of humanity applies equally to Jesus. Now stay with me here, okay? Because we're halfway through our class. It's easy to check out. Don't check out. Do your best to stay mentally alert as we go through here. okay? Because this is, really, this is important, uh, what we're going to say here right now. That he is fully human and but we say and we say here all that's inherently true of humanity applies equally to Jesus inherently true of humanity but then the next line says that does not include sinfulness now when we think of humanity we we can't but think of sinfulness because that's all we've known right I mean I'm human and I'm sinful you're human and you're sinful every human you know is human and sinful. Every human since Adam and Eve sinned first in the garden has been both human and sinful, except Jesus, who was the one but not the other. Fully human, but not sinful. And that's why we choose our words carefully here. All that is inherently true of humanity. Sin is not inherently true of humanity. Now, we can say that's not inherently true of humanity because there was a time when humanity was not sinful. Unfortunately, it wasn't very long. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were fully human but not sinful, meaning sin, then, is not natural to the human state. But rather, it became part of human nature after the first sin. In the future, sin will be eradicated. When we are glorified in the glorified state, when we are in, in the kingdom, or in the eternal state, then we will still be human, but not sinful. So Jesus was fully human, but never sinful. Adam and Eve were created truly human, but not as sinners. Therefore, sin is not inherent to humanity. Christ, though fully human, was not sinful. So let's see the fact that he did have all of these attributes, though, of humanity. And sinfulness is not an inherent attribute of humanity. Just like deity is ascribed to Christ in Scripture, humanity is ascribed to Jesus in Scripture. It refers to Jesus as a man. 1 Corinthians 15 Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, and of course, that man is Jesus. The scriptures describe Jesus as having the components of humanity. Now, lesson number nine, we talked about our nature as humans two lessons ago. And we saw there that we have a material component and an immaterial component. You guys remember that? So we have body and we have spirit. Matter, immatter, uh, physical and, and spiritual. And what we're saying here is Jesus then has those components as well, both. He has a human body, and he has a human human spirit. So, think about what that means. The fact that God himself came, took humanity to himself, so that he now had human flesh, a human body, and a human spirit. Think about what that means. It means that the body is not evil, that matter, physical, and not just your physical flesh and your physical body, but just the physical world, is not evil. God made the physical world. God made the body. The locus, the, the location of evil is not in the physical world, but rather it's an immaterial part of us it's a spiritual problem that corrupts the way we use the material world. Now here's why that's important because a lot of people think that the body is unimportant. In fact going back in church history again there was another heresy called um, Gnosticism and the Gnostics uh, that's the Greek word for the knowers and uh, part of what they supposedly knew was this, what's called a dualism. It comes from Plato, you remember, you remember him as a Greek philosopher, Plato, P-L-O, P-L-A-T-O. And Plato called the body, this is a quote now, the body is the prison house of the soul. That it's the soul that really matters, it's the immaterial part that really matters, and unfortunately, you're stuck with it, trapped in this body, in this physical presence. And it's... This dualism between what's good, the spiritual, and what's evil, the physical. And what we got to do is focus on the spiritual and not the physical, was the idea. And you get a lot of Christians, you get preachers who say this kind of stuff. I remember seeing a video a couple of years ago, and it was chilling, really, by this guy at a Bible college, a Bible-believing Bible college, Good guy, otherwise, just theologically mistaken. And he's talking about how to counsel people. And he's using an example of counseling a woman who has been sexually abused. Now, that's a serious matter, don't you think? So be careful in what you say about that, right? And yet, this guy says, he says, you know, Look, I'm I'm paraphrasing this part, then I'll give you the quote. But he says, look, what happened to you there only happened to your body. Notice it only happened to your body. And now here's the quote. And that's the throwaway part. Your body is the throwaway part. You You see the dualism. You see the Platonism that it's only the spiritual. So focus on what's really important, the spiritual part. Don't worry about... Yikes. Okay? And that is just couldn't be more wrong, but it's based on this, this long, unfortunate tradition that goes all the way back to Plato and Greek philosophy, and it's infiltrated even Christianity. Going back to the first century, in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, And verse 2, 1 John 4, 2, John says there, if anyone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, he says that, then he is a false teacher and an antichrist. Wow. He uses strong language, doesn't he? But notice what he's pointing at. If you deny, which is what was happening in the first century, you had these Gnostics who believed in this dualistic idea, and the body is not important, and so they would say, God could not have come as man. He couldn't have because the body is evil. And so John says, if anyone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, then they're a false teacher and an antichrist. All right, so the Bible describes, the scriptures describe Jesus as having both components, the physical and the spiritual, body and spirit. Third, the scriptures refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. He says in Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. Note, bottom of page 101, the significance of the phrase Son of again. This means Jesus possesses the attributes or the characteristics of humanity. So, all the things that are true inherently of humanity belong to Jesus. Just like Son of God means he has the character qualities of deity, then Son of Man means he has the character qualities of humanity. Top of page 102. Humanity is ascribed to Jesus in Scripture and it's demonstrated by Jesus in Scripture by the fact that he experienced the human birth. Mary expected a child. The angel said, you will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus experienced spiritual and physical growth like human, human beings do. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2. He experienced human emotion. Jesus wept. He even experienced human limitations because he found himself sleeping and, and getting hungry. So Jesus is... Fully man, that is fully human. Let me just stop there then and talk about that. He's fully human then a little bit more. I've said that you've got even well-meaning people who you know, make these mistakes about it's just the spiritual parts that's important, not the physical part. And the truth is, Jesus, God, having become, Christ having become human, then says, no, God made matter. He made the physical world, He made the body, and it actually ennobles our bodies, our flesh, as important to God. That's why, guys and gals, there's going to be a resurrection of the body. You're not just going to be some disembodied spirit floating around out there in heaven. That's what a lot of people think. You know, you're just this thing floating around in heaven and, you know, you get a a halo attached to whatever, (laughs) and you've got a harp being played by whatever. And you pull up a cloud and you just, I mean, and you think about that existence and it's just, I, nah, not for me. (laughs) And it's not really the way the Bible describes it. The Bible uh, actually describes the kingdom, the kingdom as a perfect environment where we have glory, we have bodies, but they're glorified bodies. That is, they're perfect bodies. And we don't die. And there's no one lame. And all the healings, I've been mentioning this on Sunday mornings, the healings Jesus did, the healings the apostles did, these are a foretaste of what will be regular fare in the kingdom. No death. And you will work. And you will love your work. And you will, and you will, and you will be active in the kingdom. And then the kingdom will merge into what, where the Bible ends, just into the eternal state. And as I understand the kingdom merging into the eternal state and the new heaven and the new earth, it will be a continuation of the same just with this difference. It moves from almost 100% perfection to absolute perfection. That's the difference. But the same kind of existence. Now I say almost perfection. There's a period where the kingdom, we have a lesson at the end of this next semester, on the kingdom but just quickly uh, in the kingdom uh, there will be people who go into the kingdom who don't have glorified bodies They are people who came to Christ during the tribulation period and so they are part of the kingdom but they don't have their glorified bodies and so there will be some death of those people in the in the in the kingdom for one those people will have uh, those people will have children and some of those children, they come in with a sin nature. So you'll still have some people in that portion of the kingdom who come into the world. So you got us, and most of us have glorified bodies, and we're perfect, no more sin. And then you got this weird thing where you got some people who are born with a sin nature still. Satan is bound during this time, the Bible teaches. And then at the end of it, Satan is loosed for a short season. And do you know what the Bible says he does? He starts a rebellion. Who does he start a rebellion with? These people who were born during the kingdom, and they have a sin nature, and here's Jesus on the throne ruling, and they still come after him. And Jesus, of course, puts it down in short order. And then you have the new heaven and the new earth. And so that's what I mean about it moving from almost perfection to absolute perfection. But the same kind of thing will be happening. For eternity, we'll be serving God. We'll be, we'll be doing things. We will not just be floating around. we won't just be gazing at Jesus. That's what people think, you know I'm just going to look at Jesus for eternity. You know some people even have a name for it, a fancy name called the beatific vision, and you just see him and you're just entranced and you never you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean we will be amazed to be in the presence of the Lord, of course, and all of that. But we will be doing stuff. We were made to do stuff. In the garden, Adam was made to do stuff. And God said, I want you to, to cultivate the garden. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to do all of these things, ruling and reigning on my behalf. And, of course, we forfeited that. It's all going to be regained in, in the future. All right. So, Jesus being then fully, fully man. He's fully human. The body is part of that, our physical bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed in the resurrection in the future. And I want to just make this last point about the full humanity of Christ, that it includes, when I say it includes his body, it includes his blood as well. Now, I bring that up because, you know, in the Bible, the blood of Christ is spoken of a lot. Because in the first part of your Bible, you have the blood of animals being shed in obedience to God as a demonstration of the fact that we have sinned and given as an offering before God. But the Bible teaches very clearly in the book of Hebrews in your New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But where without the shedding of blood... Hebrews chapter nine and verse 22, Hebrews 9:22, Where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God requires life sacrifice. and of course, it's the sacrifice of the life of Christ that provides our full salvation, full forgiveness of sins that bulls and goats couldn't do. So you have the blood of Christ talking, talked about a lot. Uh, Ephesians 1:14. No, Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. All right, now the blood's talked about a lot then, the blood of Christ. And what a lot of people have done is said, the blood of Christ is not human blood. Have you ever heard that? That the blood of Jesus, I should say, was not human blood. It was divine blood. It was God blood. It was like special blood. Really. And there's lots of people who believe this. Good people. I've got this book called, remember I told you I keep a lot of books on my shelf that just because they're false? <laughs> so I can give illustrations and glasses like this. So this one's called The Chemistry of the Blood. And it's by M.R. Dehan. now with the Lord, M.D. He was a medical doctor. But he was also a Bible teacher. He and his family, the Dehan family, started, uh, have some of you heard of Radio Bible Class? Um, radio Bible Class, now just called RBC Ministries, but the RBC originally stood for Radio Bible Class. And it was this Bible class on the radio, daily, for years and years and years. It may still be on the radio. And a lot of very good, helpful Bible teaching. And they have another, they have a television show, I think that's still on, called uh, Day of Discovery. These are the same folks who put that out. And again, a lot of, a lot of helpful stuff, good stuff. You, you, I know if you aren't familiar with all those, you're familiar with this. The little pamphlets called Our Daily Bread, we have them out on our counter. That's these guys. If you look on the back of Our Daily Bread, it's RBC Ministries, Radio Bible. That's the Dehan family. So M.R. Dehan, decades ago, then his sons have carried on. The Dehan family's been involved with this for, for a long time. And so M.R. Dehan wrote this book, The Chemistry of the Blood. And this thing is just full of... You know, Jesus' blood not being like regular blood. He says here, Conception by the Holy Ghost was the only way the virgin birth could be accomplished. Mary nourished the body of Jesus, and he became the seed, seed of David according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit, hear this, contributed the blood of Jesus. It is sinless blood. It is divine blood. It is divine blood. That means it's God blood, is what he's saying and then he goes he's gone to talk about the the blood was god's only purchase price for redemption when man sin something happened to his blood for the life is in the blood so something happened to our blood he's saying instead of being incorruptible therefore deathless uh, blood, Adam's blood became corrupt through sin and became the subject and became subject to death. To redeem this dead sinner, life must again be imparted. The only remedy for death is life. The life is in the blood, and so blood must be furnished, which is sinless and incorruptible. And none of Adam's race could do this, for in all, all died and have sinned and come short. The angels could not furnish that blood, for they are spirit beings and they have neither flesh nor blood. There was only one, yes, only one who could furnish that blood The virgin-born Son of God with a human body, but sinless supernatural blood imparted by the Holy Spirit. And it goes on. Divine blood, supernatural blood. We see when you do that, and I understand what he's doing. The Bible talks a lot about the precious blood of Christ. And how much that means for our salvation, because it was shed to cover our sins. But the Bible nowhere teaches that it's anything but human blood. Jesus became human. And he sacrificed himself as, yes, a sinless human, a perfect human, but fully human body. And as a matter of fact, the problem with denying the full humanity of Jesus and denying the humanity of his blood is a denial of his full humanity. If you deny his full humanity, now he can't substitute for you. See, the reason he can be our substitute is precisely because he is fully human in every respect. His blood, everything. What's precious in the New Testament about his blood is not that it was divine blood or supernatural blood, but that it was blood that was poured out from an innocent, perfect victim an innocent, perfect substitute on our behalf. So, Jesus is fully man, fully human. However, as we've seen, the Scriptures also affirm that He's fully God. Christ is fully God. This gives us a complete view of the two natures of Christ, both divine and human. These truths should not, however, be construed to mean that He's two persons. The Bible is clear that He's a single person possessing two natures. So, There was another one of these church councils in the early centuries of the church called the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, 451 A.D. And it says we must never uh, confuse the natures nor divide the person. Never confuse the natures. That is, he's got two natures, divine, God, human. Don't confuse those but also never divide the person. He's not two persons. One person, two natures. Divine human. He's the God-man, which is the third and final point here. Christ Jesus is the God-man, has been shown. Christ has existed eternally as God. However, at a point in time, the second person of the triune God took to himself true humanity, thus becoming the God-man. In order to unite the divine and human natures into a single unique person, God used unique means. This union of the two natures is maintained forever. Let me just stop there. Read that sentence again. The union of the two natures is maintained forever. Have you ever thought about that? So 2,000 years ago, God the Son comes as man, takes a body to himself, and so maintaining what he had always been and not altering that at all, he now added to that humanity and became the God-man. But having added humanity, that becomes a permanent union apparently. And I say that because a couple of things. One, after Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he walked the earth, and he taught, and he did his work, and he died on the cross, and he was raised, and he ascended back to the Father. After all that happened, decades after that, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 Timothy 2.5, and he says this, there is one mediator between God and man, The man, Christ Jesus. Notice he refers to him as the man, Christ Jesus. Even though he's been raised, even though he's ascended back to to heaven, he's still human. After he's completed his work. Further, when he returns, he's going to be human. He's going to actually sit on David's throne in the kingdom. And a glorified body, but nonetheless in his body. And that's why we say... That union, then, is maintained forever. Now, how was it accomplished? The two natures were united at this word I used earlier, the incarnation. The word incarnation means to embody in flesh. So incarnation uh, comes from Latin term. Carne is Latin for flesh or meat. So uh, if you're a carnivore, that means you eat meat, Right? Uh, that's where that comes from. Uh, chili chili con carne, you've heard, right? You've heard of that? So that's chili with meat. So this incarnation then means to embody in the flesh or, or meat. Theologians use this term to describe the event in which Christ entered the human race. John 1.14, again, the word became flesh. And the Bible describes how that occurred. First, by means of a virgin conception now sometimes we talk about the virgin birth of christ uh, but it's really not the virgin birth that is the key theological point or even scriptural point it's it's not the virgin that mary was a virgin at the time of jesus birth it's that she was a virgin at the time of his conception because it's the conception that by which you got your sin nature (laughs) and i got my sin nature and the reason, then, a virgin, a miraculous conception was needed it was not so you'd get mirac- you know, divine blood, supernatural blood like M.R. That's not the reason. It was so that, though, so that Jesus could be, on the one hand, fully human because he was conceived, he got his human nature through Mary. But there was no, there was no human conception of Joseph and Mary or Mary and another man through which the sin nature is passed on. The moment of your conception by your parents is when you became a living soul and you acquired your sin nature. It's one of the reasons that we are against abortion from conception on, is because a living soul comes into a being at conception. But that's how... God effected the incarnation, becoming flesh. God becoming man, fully human, acquiring a human nature from his mother, but not acquiring a sin nature because it was a miraculous conception. Bottom of page 102. The virgin conception was necessary in order to prevent a sin nature from being transmitted to Jesus. The fact that Jesus did not possess a sin nature coupled with the fact that he is God, meant that Jesus could not sin. And theologians refer to this as the impeccability of Christ. Something that's impeccable is perfect. And so he is impeccable. He, he not only did not sin, he could not sin. And the incarnation must be distinguished from, yikes, there's another big term, the kenosis. I mean, where does that come from? Comes from Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That phrase, made himself nothing, that is from a Greek word that we get, kenosis, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That term comes from the Greek word, That's translated, made himself nothing. Since the word can refer to a literal emptying, sometimes it says, in some translations, not he made himself nothing, but he emptied himself. But that can lead to this erroneous idea that Christ emptied himself of being God, of his divine attributes. But God the Son was not changed by his incarnation. He retained all the attributes of being God, of deity. The correct meaning of that word is expressed in the translation, he made himself nothing nothing his making himself nothing is this the voluntary voluntary humiliation that he endured when he suffered ridicule and death at the hands of his creatures the kenosis the making himself nothing was reversed though by his resurrection and his exaltation therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name the kenosis was reversed but the incarnation is permanent Okay, so he remains man, but he is no longer in his humiliation and suffering. He's been raised and exalted. Third, the incarnation occurred by means of a permanent union of divine and human in one, one person. The union of the divine and human natures involved the adding of humanity to deity. We have the word adding underlined and bolded because that's the key. He's always been God. When he came to earth 2,000 years ago, he remained fully God. None of that changed. So it's not something was subtracted from his deity. That remained intact. You simply added to what he always had been, full humanity. And B, the union of the divine and human natures, as I've said, is permanent. And I quoted 1 Timothy 2.5. Those two natures are, top of page 104, maintained throughout eternity. As we've said, ultimately, the doctrine of the natures and person of Christ, Jesus, is, like the triunity of God, incomprehensible. The doctrine cannot be fully understood by finite minds. Any doctrine that's a mystery is susceptible to error. One mark of a cult is the confusion or the denial of one of Christ's natures. So we must never deny the genuineness or the completeness of His deity, never deny the genuineness or completeness of His humanity, And, as I said from the Council of Chalcedon 451, never confuse the natures or divide the person. Okay? Yeah, don't. So if you guys will just promise never to do any of those, then I'll be a happy man, and we can conclude our lesson, and thanks for coming. See you Sunday.